Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the trade story once again front and center. The clock ticking, but President Donald Trump said he won't meet Chinese President Xi Jinping before a March 1st deadline to avert high U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, injecting some pessimism into the market. Global equities well on course for the first weekly drop for this year. David Balin dropping by City Private Bank, Chief Investment Officer here in New York. Good morning to David. Good morning to you. Your confidence not shaken. By the last 24 hours, why not? Not really. I think that the expectations that people had are 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 probably muted. Uh, I think that the best thing that could happen in March uh, is that the there's an agreement to continue to talk, maybe an agreement on a couple of major uh, points, and then an agreement to continue to talk. The fact that Trump is not traveling is actually a head fake. Uh, it takes weeks to prepare for a president to travel abroad, and the whole idea that he was going to travel before March 1st seems like a, a kind of a misnomer to me. Sounds cliche, but it feels like an excuse to sell and not a reason. Uh, and perhaps tells me a little bit more about the low levels of conviction people have about this rebound in January, David. Well, you know, if I look at the headlines in last December, it was the worst December in 30 years, right? In January, the best January in 30 years. I think we're in a situation where people got well ahead of their negativity uh, in 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 December, and they're probably very optimistic in catching back up in January. We're going to a more normal market environment. We're going to see more volatility, and we're going to see markets tend to trend up for the remainder of the year, frankly, though. Most people would say it's right to price out recession risk after overly pricing it in through December. The argument, though, I think, is whether we should have any kind of multiple expansion on a year where earnings are being revised lower, they're not being revised higher, and uncertainty is increasing worldwide, and there's a real question mark as to whether that feeds back in to the United States and to what degree. Right. Let's assume that you're right and that there is no multiple expansion. We actually think that the U.S. market in general is going to be up in terms of earnings 7 to 8%. Uh, we've taken a look at our growth statistics. Let's, you know, we think the U.S. is a 2.5% grower, emerging markets 4.5% grower. China is stimulating their economy a 6% grower. So we don't see the recession that everyone is sort of talking about as in 2019 and maybe not even in early 2020. On a granular basis, excuse me. That's the blue button right there. What's that, that mean? I, that's the first time I've been in the studio. So I see. The blue button is a Tottenham blue as they take on Lester. Is it Lister or Lester? It's Lester. I was stopped by John from uh, York Castle who said, talk up Lester West, Tottenham. West York Castle. I have no idea. Tom, this I think is Dodger blue. That's Dodger blue? It yeah. does look Dodger blue. Francine Lacroix needs a baseball cap. Maybe we'll do that. Everyone you, is so confused now. Well, so am I. You talk about granular fundamentals, okay? Granular fundamentals, David. Do they come from the revenue line surprises the gloom crew? The operating income line surprises the gloom crew? How do you get multiple expansion? I'm not suggesting that we're going to see a significant amount of multiple expansion. You're dealing in what I think is pessimism, which is when will the recession occur? And yet the data doesn't suggest that okay. it's right there. So, Richard Clarida right. agrees with you. Right. And so, so, the, so the, the question then is, what should stocks do if multiples don't expand? And the answer is they should go up you know, somewhere between 8 and 10% from 
where they were, let's say, at the beginning of the year for sure, given where we started. But when you look at global equities, travel outside of the United States, Tom, and you're going to see in the emerging markets you know, a, a much more robust mm -hmm. environment right now for them, much more constructive given that rates in the United States have peaked. Uh, this is a time when you can actually see you know, growth in yeah. those markets come through. And, and John, Elsa Lingos earlier this morning with RBC was adamant about this, of the title shifts of EM where you're going to see real currency dynamics that will support a more stable uh, a, a global economy. Let's fold the bond market into all of this. And there's two ways of looking at the bond market right now. The, the bullish way of looking at things for equities is to say, well, yields are lower, that's supportive of equities. The negative way of looking at all of this is saying, what on earth are bond yields doing back at 10 basis points on a German 10-year? The curve's negative all the way out to nine years. The 10-year Treasury yield is now 264. That doesn't spell out a nice, good, beautiful global growth story. How do you look at it? Right. It actually, uh, first of all, I've learned over the last 10 years, certainly at City, that the bond guys tend to have it right more often than ah, not. And, and, and I, I want to just acknowledge that to all of the bond people out there listening. This is a big statement They'll on my part. They'll be nodding their heads in their car. Right. They're, they're, no. they're very happy this morning because they're driving. They're driving a little faster now. Uh, but, but this is the thing. It's uh, it's hard to imagine, but if you if you look back at what the Fed's done, they've had nine rate increases, but they've done it over a very long period of time. Yellen and Powell looking very similar in terms of their approach. Their inflation not a big deal. Unemployment, you know, at four percent. These are these are positive things in terms of sustaining an economy that's growing slowly. What you just said is vitally important for all equity people. Always listen to the bond guys. So I'll pick on Steve Major, HSBC, who looks like a genius this morning with a 30-year bond. John, 2.9873 on a 30-year bond. What do those yields signal in the bond space for the equity space? Well, what they're signaling is a very long-term outlook of benign inflation. And put greater and value on equity cash I, flows, right? Equity cash flows on dividends, on buybacks. If you think mm -hmm. about where your total return is going to be greatest over the course of the next decade, you can't help but think yeah. that this is going to be bullish for equities. I think he's auditioning for the real yield, John. I mean, oh, I think you need an equity show. guy on at, the at real yield, which you can see on Fridays. On for about two minutes. It would be a short story. It would be like 30 seconds. Exactly. We'll, you know. It would not be a very long we'll second. We'll give you 90 seconds. But, if John, you want seriously, David. the real yield today is like a real show because these are real bond yields. Yeah, and not just in the sovereign space, but in the credit space as well. We've just had the biggest net increase, biggest inflows into high yield right. bond funds since 2016. Huge amount of money Huge flowing amount. in. So That's it's not right. just equities running away on their own. I mean, we've had a big move, a right. corresponding move in the credit space as well, David. Right. And, and I mean, we are advising our clients now, opportunistic, their core portfolios, we've moved them already uh, into like EM debt and some of the high yield spaces. But opportunistically, we think that EM debt in local currency is going to turn out to be a terrific opportunity because, again, benign outlook for the dollar. And ultimately, you're going to see uh, you know, emerging market currencies rally. So it's a good combination for bond investors. Assuming the Fed is out of the game, is that the central assumption here that the Federal Reserve has done? Does that underpin a lot of well, your views? Well, not necessarily done, but very nearly done. Like another rate rise, one more type of thing could happen, depending on whether there's an optimistic burst in the U.S., but largely done. That's right. David Balin, great to catch up with you. City Private Bank Chief Investment Officer here in New York City.
Right now, Greg Vallier joining us. He is with Horizon Investments. And of course, let's go to the political score. Woodrow Wilson, 40, uh, 435 electoral votes. Mr. Roosevelt from New York, 88 electoral votes. William Howard Taft, eight electoral votes. And Eugene Debs, socialist, zero electoral votes. And this is, of course, the election of 1912 when Young Vallier began his work. Uh, in, in political economics. Greg, it's all the rage. I'm talking about it. Mike Allen uh, over at Axios leading with it. Greg Ip in the Wall Street Journal. It's a new socialism. Describe for our audience the new socialism of the democratic socialists of the Democratic Party. Well, it's very big government, Tom. Uh, the proposal unveiled yesterday uh, by the uh, the left uh, talks about an enormous role for government. How you pay for this stuff is a mystery to me. Even with confiscatory taxation, I don't see how they can pay for all this stuff. So to me, it gives the Republicans a potential foil. Reagan had to win. He went right and then like clockwork, and you know it better than me, he moved back to the middle. In this polarized time, if it's Trump and somebody leftish, do they move back to the middle as they move to November of 2020? It's a great opportunity for Trump. Uh, I think getting 270 votes is a little more difficult this time. But if he shows some willingness to compromise, and we get a litmus test in the next week on, on the wall, if he says, well, I'll take whatever deal I can get, I'm not going to declare an emergency, I'm not going to shut down the government, right. that would be a sign that he may be turning a little more pragmatic. What does it mean for the pragmatic Vice President Biden? I mean, in terms of the decision tree of all this, we can assume well, I, that the I gentleman is not Biden for uh, Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, maybe for Michael Bloomberg. Uh, there clearly is an avenue where I think a moderate Democrat could have a chance. And we note that Mr. Bloomberg has a nodding acquaintance with Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television and is the principal uh, owner. If that's true, Greg Vallier, if, if, if we have a middle ground of Democratic Party, can there be a middle ground of Republican Party to take on Mr. Trump? No, I, I don't see that. When, when you look at the polls, Tom, you see Rep the Republican base is overwhelmingly supportive of Trump. Uh, well, someone like Mitt Romney, Jeff Flake, uh, Bob Corker, they'd have no chance. Okay, and this goes back to my, you know, I'm, I'm talking about 1912 and Eugene Debs, a socialist. Have the Republicans now with the last election, are they getting Whiggish? Are they beginning to look like, this is before your time, Greg Vallier, but are they looking 1840, 1845, where they disappear into the minority ether? Well, they have their division just as the Democrats have a division. On the Republican side, there's the Chamber of Commerce, pro-business, pro-free trade Republicans. They're in retreat. And then you've got the, the much uh, stronger social conservatives, uh, populist uh, that uh, Trump identifies. Yeah. So the Republicans have a division, too. But I would argue the division that's going to be the most apparent is going to be among the Democrats. And, and John Farrell, you mentioned this the other day brilliantly, I can't remember on mic, off mic, about in England there's a whole socialist debate you know, going back oh, absolutely. Uh, with the memories of the 1970s um, in the minds of a lot of people that do not want to go back there. Uh, Greg, you do an excellent job of folding in the world of Washington, D.C. into the world of Wall Street. There's some extreme left-wing proposals coming from some Democrats, as we've talked about. When does Wall Street start to listen? And when I mean listen start to move, start to act, start to care? Is it a 12-month story? How far away are we from that moment? 
Yeah, it's it's not imminent. And I tell you guys, what I think is the key is what happens in the Senate. Uh, if the Senate stays Republican in, yeah. in 2020, and there's a chance it will, that's the ba- that's the firewall. Uh, all of this very activist legislation would die in the Senate. So I think Wall Street would correctly think even if a Democrat became president, the chances of getting really sweeping stuff enacted really hinges on a Senate that may stay Republican. Right. As you write for Friday and into the weekend, Greg, set us up for Monday, Tuesday, next week. What are you looking at? Uh, I'm trying to think. I I think it's probably going to be two stories. One, the titillating one about the National Enquirer. That's going to have legs, and there may be a lot more uh, looming there. And secondly, the wall. I think that uh, there's going to be a a deal proposed to the president. Who the proposes that on the Republican side? We spoke to the congressman from Chattanooga, and he said it was basically going to come out of thin air, baloney. Who comes up with that deal to give it to the president? Oh, I think they have one already, and I think they have a messenger. The messenger is Lindsey Graham. I think he'll tell the president, look, this is the best you can get. We'll get you 3 or $4 billion for border security. And since the president's other options are so unpalatable, he just might take it. To wrap things up, we trade if we can, uh, Greg. I thought the discussion yesterday over whether this deal would or wouldn't get done by the end of the month was ridiculous. It was ridiculous because it was based on a bunch of reporters shouting at the president whether a meeting with him or Xi Jinping would happen by the end of the month. He shook his head. He said no. We're trading headlines here, Greg, and big time, without much context. What do you make of that? Well, that's a good point, and I think that... We're not close to a deal by March 1st, or March 2nd, I guess, is the deadline. I think there'll be an extension. What I think happens is in the spring or maybe early summer, there's a crescendo, a meeting between Trump and Z in which they reach an agreement in principle. But an agreement in principle is not imminent. Greg Vellier, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, really uh, looking forward to the comments from Mr. Vellier into the political season uh, as well. David Stubbs with us, who's a Senior Vice President of Absurdity at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, does terrific economics uh, and folds it into market analysis. David, what are you writing Friday for Monday morning? Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm writing about the hope that we'll see some kind of turnaround soon in China and, and European data, because if we don't, we're looking increasingly um, you know, in a very difficult situation for both earnings, for macroeconomics, and um, uh, you know, a continuation yeah. of the, the theme of the last 12 months where the U.S. was leading uh, you know, the, the yeah. global economy, earnings, and equity markets. Um, we expect the U.S. to slow late next year, but that's no good for the rest of the world if the rest of the world is already uh, in, great, in great difficulty. Well, David, you know, this weekend our listeners are going to be at the kitchen table john farrow and his family is going to be watching lester tots and and all that and they're going to be talking about their investment allocation when the facts change david stubbs change what's the new allocation given the january february shift we've seen well, Tom, we're still absolutely advising clients to use strength in markets to gradually retool their uh, portfolios 
to be slightly more defensive because we see 2020 as a time when the US economy is going to be slowing significantly. Um, we don't yet have the faith that international markets are going, are going to, uh, to, you know, to pick up. So it really depends, obviously, on the goal of the money, the time horizon. I, I saw that you know, I, did, I heard the uh, intro about the, the pension funds and the, you know, and, uh, the sovereign wealth companies, insurance companies. Uh, we advise a lot of those, and they have obviously been, as, uh, as John said, extending equity allocations over the last few uh, few years. But we see now after you know a very long cycle, um, too many portfolios with uh, very short duration allocations, with um, too much cyclical exposure in the equities, and so we have a range of things we're recommending. Firstly, you know, right size the kind of safe havens uh, of the portfolio, um, lengthen that duration if if you if it's quite short. We do like uh, gold tactically as well over the next uh, year or so. Um, don't just go to cash because if the, t- the situation is going to get worse, yeah. other things are going to perform better than than cash. And lastly, just on the equity side, we still like a large chunks of technology and healthcare as secular growth themes. We don't want clients backing away from all growth assets. We do want them to focus on the secular themes rather than the secular drivers. So remove some cyclicality, add to the secular themes. That's the equity story for you, David. I want to pick up on the bond story. Let's do a little bit of a bonds clinic for those listeners who are outside of the bond market world. The concept of duration and being long duration, David, just walk us through the concept and why it's important to add some duration right now. Well, John, it's, it's exceptionally important to understand, again, the total return of your bond fund. It's not just about clipping that coupon. It's about a movement in the price. And if yields go down, price goes up. And the relationship between the two is the sensitivity to the change interest rates. That's duration. It tends to be bigger, longer duration. The further you go out the curve, the, the longer the maturity. So if you have, say, only, say, two or three-year bonds, um, as, you know, as yields fall, potentially, as markets fear risk off, you get some movement in the price, but not a, but not a huge, uh, huge movement. If you're owning 10-year, let alone 20, 30-year bonds, you get a very, very significant move up as well. And that's indeed what we've seen. Uh, your long bonds have performed very well since, say, Oct- October and, uh, and, uh, you know, and November. And also, you want to, inside uh, you know, the, uh, your fixed income, I see a lot of people pointing at corporate credit and saying, well, there's my duration. That's what's going uh, to protect me on the way down. That's right. As long as as long as the the, the bonds, the corporate bonds, are high enough quality, we want people getting out of the triple Bs. Uh, where I know you've talked a lot on your show, the real yield about uh, the, the big uh, growth of triple B market. We put you want to go up into the single A's, double A's, um, and be tactical into high into high yield. We want to not be holding that paper when there's any re-rating stories. We think that's going to be a big story in the corporate credit market as we go into 2020. Who wrote David Stubbs a check to to plug real yield? 1 p.m. Eastern time. It's, it's, I get it's it. a beautiful John, thing. I'm in restaurants or bars. I was a trembling madness about three weeks ago in, in near Yorkminster. Did, they, did they have the TV on? They don't have a TV <laughs> on. No, they don't do that. It's like 1180 or whatever. But everywhere I go, the, the Ned across from Queen Victoria Street, all they talk about is the real It's very real nice. Deal. David, let's reverse engineer it just a little bit. Conversely, if yields go up at the long end, you can really have to absorb some damage. Why is that not going to happen? Why is the why is the possibility of that happening limited in your mind? You know, we don't get don't get us wrong. We think that it, you know that yields could you know move higher up towards you know three percent as we go through the next couple of quarters. If U.S. growth hangs in there, you get a resolution of some of these political overhang issues. Italy trade. Brexit, government shut, shut down, sentiment can push yields up there. I think the change in, inside JP Morgan in the last six to 12 months mm. is just to lower the kind of yield levels where we would be more uh, enthusiastic buyers. We used to say you know, 3% and up. I think if we get you know 
your, your 2.8 or, or up, then we start to get more and more aggressive now. I think that yeah. markets are telling you that the neutral uh, rate is lower than you thought it was. The Fed, I think, is listening to markets. And you have around the world, as you were just talking about, the, the dramatic move lower in some of the eurozone uh, bond yields. You know, 2.8, 2.9 on the US 10-year looks good value to, uh, to us. So, yes, you, we, you, there's a possibility there could be some mark-to-market losses if you go out and buy a long yeah. government bond now. But the starting point of the portfolio matters. If you have none of this stuff right now, you need to start accumulating where we are. If you have quite a lot relative to your risk profile, maybe you're not an aggressive buyer today, but you give another 10, 15 basis yeah. points on that yield, I think we should start buying again. I could go another hour. David Stubbs, J.P. Morgan, don't be a stranger. Thank Thanks, you so David. much. Greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. It's great to have David uh, on. Yeah, he's, he's, just, he's just wonderful. Again, out of London School of Economics. And he's got a very cool doctorate from the New School in New York, which is a wonderful, twisted uh, program. Good morning to the memory of Mr. Heilbronner, among others, and Peter Bernstein and the academic energy David of the Stumps new school. From, from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. We always have our good friend Margaret Brennan join us. Margaret is the host of CBS's Face the Nation. She always gives us her sense of what is going on in Washington. And Margaret, we have so many topics that I'm sure you're looking at. The on-again, off-again trade talks, the possible second government shutdown. But where I want to lead off, Margaret, is where I left off with Tom just recently. Is That is my Duke Blue Devils are going to pay a visit to your University of Virginia Cavaliers tomorrow for Uh-oh. a big basketball game. My question to you, Margaret, is will you be watching? Um, well, Saturday is usually prep time for me, but I will hopefully watch a little bit of the game. My husband's also a Wahoo, and my uh, five, almost five-month-old son already has Virginia gear waiting Aww. for him. <laughs> oh, Mar- yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit away from the game because you interviewed President Trump last weekend, and I thought that it was a great interview. Congratulations. I want to ask, you. what was his demeanor like? Um, you know, it's rare that the president sits to talk to a network like CBS. He's very often on television, though it's normally on cable with Fox News. Um, and uh, so it's rare for him to sit for an extended interview with a Sunday show host like myself, where he gets to talk about, for an extended period, very serious topics and follow up and follow through. And the president, I will say, seemed to be prepared for that moment, seemed to actually want to engage. Um, he uh, sat down and gave us about 45 minutes of time. That's not what we walked in thinking we'd get. It was supposed to be less time than that. But he had a number of things he wanted to say. He, I think, enjoyed the back and forth. Um, you know, I was tough on a few things, but I felt fair in uh, the approach and challenging him where I did. Um, and to his credit, uh, you know, he, he gave us that lengthy amount of time on some really serious issues. Well, Margaret, one of those serious issues uh, that is confronting the president and the administration is the trade talks with China. They are on again, off again. Uh, It appears that they might be off again, at least at the presidential level, before the March 1st deadline. What is your sense of what is going on with the trade talks and how they might play out? Well, that March 1st deadline is looming large. I know there was some disappointment yesterday to hear from the White House that they did not plan for the president to tack on a trip to China on the back end of his North Korea summit. Uh, which will be upcoming last week of February in Vietnam. Um, And I I think that was definitely an about face for the White House. They had expected to be invited to China. They had been 
um, talking about the potential of going there. You know, the president said at least one to two meetings with Xi Jinping himself. He may have gotten ahead of his skis on that because those doing the negotiations, Robert Lighthizer, the, the trade representative and his team, uh, don't appear to want to um, go full steam ahead and go to a country without having a deal hammered out um, in, in the first place. The optics of that obviously would yeah. be difficult. Um, and so uh, the president seems to have pulled back some of his enthusiasm, I would argue, intentionally there. So, Margaret, the reason why I started by asking about uh, President Trump's demeanor is because the way he is portrayed of late is kind of embattled a little bit more than he has been earlier in his presidency, Mm -hmm. certainly feeling the fact that Congress is not with him anymore. Even Republicans are pushing back more. Did you get a sense that he felt more isolated uh, and, and, and whether he felt cowed by that or emboldened? Well, you know, because of what you just laid out and certainly on the end of the 35-day shutdown uh, where he didn't get a single thing he asked for and seemed to lose that political battle, I was expecting um, him to be, you know, coming from that place of deep frustration uh, and and to sound like it. What's clear is he is frustrated. He seems to be giving up on Congress, but that didn't seem, at least in the demeanor in our conversation, to be uh, disrupting his confidence level. If anything, he... Um, was dismissive of the majority of Senate Republicans who rebuked his foreign policy choices, you know, voting to say you're endangering national security by withdrawing from Syria and Afghanistan. I mean, that's a significant and rare break for Senate Republicans to do something like that uh, when they've largely fallen in line, even if privately they have problems with some of the president's policies. He didn't seem swayed in any way by that. Um, He also was very clear in our conversation that the facts and changing facts as presented by the intelligence community aren't going to change his opinion. He said, I have intelligence people and I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to agree with them. That's a true statement. But that causes some concern among um, those who say, is there a political filter that's going to be put on intelligence in the way uh, that it was arguably Uh, going into the Iraq war, that it wasn't just a problem with intelligence. It was cherry picking intelligence to meet your thesis. So if the facts and the changing facts aren't influencing opinion, where does that lead us? But I'd say for the president himself, he seemed very confident in his convictions. Uh, Despite these breaks from him, he seems to enjoy uh, the being embattled. Margaret Brennan, we really appreciate you taking the time. We're very much looking forward uh, to seeing the next episode of Face the Nation on CBS. Margaret Brennan, of course, is host of that show. And you can hear Margaret Brennan this weekend on Bloomberg Radio. Listen to Face the Nation Sunday at 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and Bloomberg 106.1 Boston, Newburyport. That's Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.